Heavenly Father, I do thank you, Father, for the grace you've shown Oak Hill Bible Church to those of us who make this our place of worship on a regular basis. The grace, Father, to preserve this small church for so many years against all odds in some respects. We thank you, Father, for the men and women you've raised in leadership over the many years that this church has worked here, the sacrificial efforts that they've given to the needs of this body and continue to give today. I thank you for those, Father, who have given through their finances to support those who work here and for the needs of the facility and all that comes with ministry. Thank you, Father, for the children that have been raised here and gone out and in many cases, Father, have devoted their lives to ministry in other parts of the world. It's to your glory, Father, but it is also a crown that this church can wear. I thank you, Father, for the consistency of what's been taught here over the years and the steadfastness of this church to maintain what is written in Scripture and to live it as best it can. I also ask you, Father, to overlook our flaws and our weaknesses, to have mercy on us when we are not living according to what we say and teach, and, Father, to have mercy on our inability to accomplish all that you might have us do. And yet, Father, we thank you for the opportunities to serve, for the responsibility that it is to carry the message of the gospel into Austin. Embolden us, Father, strengthen us for that important mission. Use what may come out of the word this morning to help in that regard, to draw us near to you and to be more like you so that our message, Father, would be reinforced by the truth of who we are in Christ. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're at chapter 30, right at about verse 25. We've got Jacob, his four wives, his 11 sons, and at least one daughter that we know of, are still living in Haran, serving Laban. Jacob's been here now for 14 years in all. In that time, he's used his work under Laban's household to pay the dowry for his two wives. And then, of course, he obtained the two additional wives along the way. And if you remember, the extra seven years was made necessary by Laban's dishonesty in the way he tricked Jacob into marrying the wrong woman. But in fact, that's been Laban's plan, really, all along, to hold Jacob into this home and to keep him from ever leaving, really, because Jacob's knowledge of shepherding has been such a benefit to Laban's household. It's been a tremendous blessing. Before Jacob ever appeared on the scene, Laban had been forced to use his own daughter at one point to shepherd his flocks. And, of course, we saw at the time that his operation had not amounted to very much. It was in disarray. But now Jacob has come, and after 14 years of working as a shepherd in Laban's operation, the sheep herding is going really well for Laban, but for Jacob, he's paid what he owed Laban, and obviously he wants to get home and see his family. But more than that, he wants to go back and earn his own life. You know, his work now has amounted to nothing for him except the wives that he offered to work for. And until he starts working for himself, he's going nowhere in his own household. He had to pay off the debts, now he wants to earn an inheritance for himself. So he's ready to leave. And if he doesn't leave, all he's succeeding in doing is building up Laban's son's inheritance, which is no good to him. So he announces in chapter 30, verse 25, he announces his intentions to leave. Now, it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you and let me depart. For you yourself know my service, which I have rendered you. 
But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, Name me your wages, and I will give it. But he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it is increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So following the birth of the 11th son, Joseph, we're told, Jacob finally goes to Laban and asks him for permission to leave. And he tells Laban, I want you to give me my wives that I've earned, give me my children, and allow me to depart because the 14 years of service now has been completed. You might ask, well, why does Jacob even ask the question? Why does Jacob need Laban's permission? Why didn't he just say, I'm gone and be done with it? Well, the culture of the day puts tremendous emphasis, tremendous priority on the authority of the leader of any tribe or any clan. And Jacob has come under the authority of Laban, who is the leader of this family. And since Jacob has been welcomed into the home and submitted to his authority, he now has to respect that authority, according to the culture. Jacob was bound by his own word to work for Laban to pay for those wives, a total of 14 years. Therefore, only Laban can release him from that duty. Only Laban could say, you've met my requirements. I now free you from this obligation. So Jacob is asking Laban to honor his agreement, to honor his word, to do what he said he would do. And that is to allow him to have ownership, if you will, of his wives now that that agreement has been met. Well, Laban, of course, doesn't want to do this. I mean, he has to be a man of his word to some degree. Remember the culture, saving face, keeping the appearance of honor was all important. So Laban can't just out and out change the deal. He can't look dishonest, but he doesn't want Jacob to leave. So wanting Jacob to stay, Laban makes a counter offer, you could say, to Jacob, trying to hold on to him. Laban tells Jacob, I know my household has been blessed through your work. I know that you are responsible for my household's growth. In fact, he says he has come to know this, interestingly, in a supernatural way. Through divination, he says, I've come to know that God himself is the one blessing me through your efforts. Now, there's an interesting comment being made there, because in the Hebrew, the word for divination is nakshas. And what it literally means is satanic sorcery. Or incantations. You'll see this word used at other places in Scripture, particularly in the law in Leviticus, where the nation of Israel is prohibited by God from ever doing this sort of thing, this specific word. Laban is a pagan man. We know this already. And as a pagan, he practices the occult. He practices divination using satanic sources for his spiritual direction. And so what he's saying, and, and we'll use our own words now, Laban is saying the enemy has instructed Laban that Jacob is the cause of Laban's blessing, and therefore he should hold on to Jacob if he wants to continue to be blessed. That's what Laban has come to know, and he's come to know it through the enemy. Obviously, the enemy here is working to keep Jacob away from the promised land, and we can understand why the enemy would want to do that. He wants to disrupt the Lord's plan concerning Israel. And he recognizes that if he can keep Jacob where he is, then perhaps he would be successful in that way. But what we need to note in passing is Satan's ability here to manipulate unbelievers. 
Satan is not omniscient. He's not a being that equals God. He's a created being. And as such, he's limited in his knowledge, just in the same sense that we are. He can't know the future. He can't understand God's purposes. He can't understand scripture. No one can understand scripture apart from the spirit of God. But what he can do is through the natural intelligence God has given him as a created being, he can see that two plus two is equal to four. He can make sense of the circumstances to a degree. And he can see that Jacob is important to God. He's the patriarch in the line of the patriarchs. He knows that the land that God has promised is not the land of Haran. It's in the land of Canaan. So he makes the obvious conclusion that he can work against God's purpose if he holds Jacob here. Satan can work directly in the lives and in the minds of unbelievers, as he's doing here. What Laban did in the practice of divination was make an appeal to the God that Laban knew, the God that Laban thought was the real God. But unbeknownst to Laban, he's appealing to Satan. Many unbelievers do this. Some do it fully knowingly, of course. Some are satanic and call themselves such, but the vast majority are not. The vast majority walk into a house of worship that may say at the top, uh, Islam, Muhammad. Others walk into those that say Mormonism or say Jehovah's Witnesses or say Hinduism, gym and fitness, Mark 8 cinema. In other words, places that they go to be fed lies that they believe are truth. Am I saying it's bad to go into a gym or a movie house? No, you know that I'm not. I'm saying that for the unbeliever who does not know the living God, they have no access to the truth of God. They have only access to what the world itself can give them. And who is the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world? Satan. And he is feeding them the knowledge that they have, though it is all lies. And what Laban was fed here is a partial truth. And this is very helpful to see because it's so characteristic of the way Satan works in general, like he did in the garden, telling the woman a partial truth, which, as we all know, is an entire lie. Right. And here again, Satan tells Laban that Jacob is the cause of Laban's wealth. Well, that is absolutely true, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that God's promises working through Jacob are the source of Laban's wealth. His blessing. Nevertheless, showing Laban that Jacob is the key was Satan's attempt to thwart God. Satan's attempt to control Laban. Satan's attempt to take what Laban wanted, which was earthly riches, and use it as the carrot to call Laban into doing what Satan wanted him to do. To control Laban and therefore, through Laban, to control Jacob. So Laban offers to hire Jacob here. He offers to take Jacob out of the indentured servitude that he's been in for 14 years and move him to the status of simply a hired hand. But he goes a step further. He says, you can have any wage you want in this role. Name what you want. I will pay you. Now, that could sound like a very fair and even a very generous offer, right? Jacob could finally begin working now in a way where he amassed his own wealth. He began to earn his own inheritance rather than simply pay off a debt to Laban. But remember, Laban is the owner of all the flocks and all the herds that Jacob would be shepherding if he were to take this offer. And in any business situation, who gets richer? The owner of the business or the people who work for him? We all know the answer to that, right? No matter how generous the wages are to the workers, the owner of the business will always be richer than the employee. And that's what Laban's depending on here. If Jacob works for him, Laban is going to end up with far more than anything Jacob could probably ask for as a wage. 
And Jacob knows this too. And so Jacob isn't interested because he's not interested in working for someone when he has his own flocks waiting for him back in Canaan. He has his own inheritance waiting for him back with Isaac. And so Jacob says to Laban, you know, this isn't a good deal. You know, I've served you for 14 years and I've made you rich in the process because I have the ability to multiply herds in verse 30. Jacob says to Laban that his herds have, quote, increased. But the Hebrew word for increase there, parats, it means literally to break forth, like to break through a wall. It's a bit of a euphemism. What Jacob is saying is, when I showed up, the size and the strength of your herds leaped forward, jumped ahead because of my influence. The source of this blessing is the Lord who brought Jacob's success at every turn and that is not something that Jacob is interested in hiring out. Did you notice that Jacob mentions the Lord here? This is not typical for Jacob. How often has this guy completely ignored God in his life and he moved forward thinking only about his own schemes and his own strength? And yet here's a moment, a glimmer of hope in this man, Jacob, because he says that he knows it is the Lord who is blessing him through this work. Well, hallelujah for Jacob, finally. He understands the Lord's been at work to bring about these blessings. But I want you to notice how fast this glimmer of hope fades. Because though he's just said, my provision comes from the Lord. Nevertheless, I do have a deal for you, Laban. Verse 31, he says, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. So here's Jacob's offer. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come concerning my wages, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. So what Laban does is offer to Jacob, I will pay you. What do you want to be paid? Jacob said, I don't want to be paid. I want an inheritance. Laban said, OK, what shall I give you? What Laban just offered to do was invite Jacob into his own family's inheritance. If that would hold him in the household. That's a sign of Laban's desperation. He's basically willing to adopt Jacob in a sense at this point. And share his inheritance with Jacob, which means taking something away from his natural born sons. That's how important Jacob's influence has been for Laban. So now the option for Jacob is to stay in this home, build his wealth in this home, earn a piece of the inheritance from Laban and have everything he might have wanted now just by staying in this place. Now, in hearing Laban's offer. Jacob first is not interested in staying in Haran. He is committed to going back into the land. That is also a good sign for us that Jacob knows where his God is and where his home is and where his own inheritance is. And that that inheritance is something eternal, not something merely temporal. That's a good sign. But the problem with Jacob is he never has, at least to this point in his life, figured out that trusting in God is not a partial activity. That you trust in God and not trust in the world, not trust in yourself. But that ultimately is the fullest definition of faith in God, to put yourself in God's care and to not have a foot still in the world. And we all struggle with that, don't we? I mean, it's the very nature of being in the world 
that causes us to still feel like we can depend on it and our work in it to some degree for our own sake. But to fully be in the Lord's trust, to be in his hands and to put all your trust in his hands is not to leave the world. Jesus himself made that point. But it is to say, rest on him entirely and give no care whatsoever to your own abilities apart from what God calls you to do in those abilities. If he were fully dependent and resting in God in this moment, what would he say to Laban? He would have said, I don't want your wages. I don't want your inheritance. I don't want anything. Let me go. And he's really at that point now. They've gone back and forth. Jacob said no a couple of times. And yet here he is again. And at this moment, you'll see a little of the old Jacob coming out. Because at this moment, Jacob sees an opportunity. The smart, scheming Jacob has a little light bulb go on over his head. And he sees an opportunity to leave, but to leave by taking some of Laban's wealth with him. Jacob tells Laban he's willing to continue keeping Laban's flocks, acting as a shepherd for Laban, so long as Laban gives Jacob the opportunity to build some wealth for himself while he's at work caring for Laban's flocks. So Jacob says, I will take as my inheritance or as my wages the speckled lambs and the spotted lambs and any lambs that are all black, and I will take the spotted and the speckled Goats, those will all be my property. And as I shepherd these flocks, anytime an animal is born with those characteristics, that animal will become mine. Now, in this region of the world, a lamb, a sheep, was generally white. And goats were generally of solid color, either brown or black. Speckled goats, you know, multicolored goats or multicolored lambs, speckled spotted lambs, were relatively few in number compared to the others. And black sheep, you know the phrase, the black sheep in the family, we have that phrase because all black sheep are very rare. So Jacob here is asking Laban for the right to keep a minimal number of animals, at least according to the probabilities in the way sheep and goats reproduce. But that minimum number, those odd animals here and there that come out in odd colors, would be Jacob's payment for the time he served Laban. Now, Jacob emphasized that this plan is good for both of them because it would make it easy for Laban to know which animals were Jacob's and which animals were not to be Jacob's. Otherwise, think about it. It would have been impossible for Laban to be sure that Jacob wasn't cheating him. But here's the real reason why Jacob chose this path. Jacob is not worried that he will cheat Laban. Now, he's worried that Laban will accuse him of cheating and use that as an excuse to take the property back. So how can Jacob be assured that what he claims he can keep and he can have confidence that Laban can't cheat him in return? Jacob's plan here is built on two assumptions. First, Jacob is assuming that his own knowledge of animal husbandry, of how to raise animals and how to take care of this herd, will allow him to multiply the herd quickly and to his advantage. Secondly, he is expecting that the Lord will continue to bless him in the way that the Lord has been blessing him, and that will only amplify the process. Now, I want you to notice there's no timeline on this plan. Jacob doesn't say, I'm going to do this for a year. doesn't say, I'm going to do it for six months or three years. He just leaves it open-ended. So what Jacob is doing here is he's agreeing to work under these terms indefinitely. 
So Laban is assuming that he's going to have Jacob employed forever. Why? Well, it's going to be very hard, in his opinion, in his expectation, for Jacob to build up a sizable flock, a flock of any regard, a flock of any value, when he's only working with the odd-colored animals that only get born here and again once in a while. And if that's true, it's going to take so many years, 5, 10, 15 years, before Jacob could ever amass any amount of real wealth, that he's basically expecting Jacob to work here the rest of his life, or very near the rest of his life. So that's why Laban's so excited about this deal. It's great for him. But Jacob, on the other hand, is also making an assumption. Jacob is assuming that he will not be with Laban for very long at all, because he will expect his own herd, those speckled and spotted and black animals, to grow very quickly. And as they grow quickly, he's expecting Laban to eventually feel threatened by the fact that the bulk of his herd is becoming Jacob's property. And he will want to separate at some point and force Jacob to leave as a way of protecting his own flock from becoming Jacob's property. But Laban has one trick up his sleeve. Look what Laban does in verse 35. So he, and that's speaking of Laban, so he removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, everyone with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and he gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Here's Laban pulling another fast one on Jacob. Laban agrees to the terms of the deal, and then as soon as they've shaken hands or whatever they did, he runs over to his sons and says, quick, take all of those animals and move them three miles away from the rest of the flock. Those animals are now assigned into Laban's son's care, so Jacob doesn't even have access to those animals. There is now no possibility in Laban's mind of Jacob even having a starting stock of speckled animals from which to begin building his own herd. He's left with nothing but solid colored goats and white lambs. And from that, he has to breed the animals that he can call his own property. So now Laban assumes that Jacob will have no choice but to work a very long time in the course of this process. Now, that's a devious trick, right? Unfair? Well... It's certainly devious, but I don't know that it's unfair because there's nothing in the agreement that prohibited Laban from doing this. Jacob never said you can't. Well, as it turns out, Jacob has a few tricks of his own. It won't matter. Look at verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white strips in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods and the flocks brought forth striped and speckled and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them in Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods on the side of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. And when the flock were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. 
All right, so Jacob now is in care of this flock. He starts with all solid color animals, all white lambs and so on. But he begins to employ some very careful techniques for selective mating, for selective breeding. First, we're told he takes rods, or the word for rod is just stick. So he takes sticks or rods of, of trees, of poplar trees, almond trees, and, the, and so on. He peels the bark back on the tree. And if you know what, obviously everyone knows this, I assume, a stick is dark colored from the bark. And if you start peeling the bark, what's underneath? A lighter colored flesh of the stick, right? And that's what you hear here, that he exposed the white, which is that flesh underneath the bark. He peels the bark back, and then we're told he takes these rods that have had their bark pulled back and puts them in the water of the troughs that these animals are drinking from. Then in verse 39, we're told the flocks will mate by these rods, by these watering troughs. And in the process of the mating, they start to bring forth, they start to bear these odd-colored animals, animals with speckles and spots and black-colored lambs and so on. Now, remember, the parents didn't have these attributes. The parents were coming in with only solid color. Or in the case of the lambs, they're all solid white. And yet they're having births in, in some cases of black lambs. And then as the spotted and speckled lambs grow up and are able to mate and have their own offspring, Jacob then, it says, positions them in such a way that they face one another. He faces the black and the striped animals toward one another. But the solid colored animals, the white lambs, for example, and the brown and black goats, he sets them apart because, remember, they're, they're Laban's. By definition, their color has made them not his. So he sets all of those animals apart. But the ones that have started to be born with these speckled and spotted colors and so on, those are his. He faces them toward one another and continues to mate them. Furthermore, when he notices some of the animals are particularly strong, he makes sure that those animals he mates and the ones that are weak, he sets aside and does not continue to mate them. So what happens over time? Over time, Jacob is building this flock of speckled and spotted and black animals that are all very strong and very healthy. And what's left over has become Laban's flock, a flock of weak and sickly solid colored animals. So what's going on here? Well, you're going to find many views and commentaries. In fact, it's kind of fun to go seeking what's out there just because of the variety of stuff. Most of them provoke more humor than insight, in my opinion. Uh, you're going to see every explanation out there from the superstitious side of things to just caveat the whole discussion and say it's all supernatural. God just did it all, which is true because God does everything. But it doesn't really get to the main question, which is what mechanism did God use? What's actually happening here? Most, in my experience, will draw a connection between the appearance of the animals and the appearance of those rods to suggest that the animal's reproductive process was somehow changed by their eyes visually seeing these rods, which had the appearance of dark and light colors. That's how most see the meaning of the text. Now, I want you to go back months and months ago to the conversations we were engaged in around Genesis chapter 2, chapter 3, when we took a bit of time out of the book and we looked at evolution, that one day seminar we did in here when we looked at the science of evolution, given what we had just learned out of the book of Genesis. And you may remember from that discussion that we noted a man named Jean Baptist Lamarck, who is an early naturalist evolutionist, who proposed a theory of inheritance of acquired characteristics. What Lamarck proposed, if you remember, 
was that an animal that acquired physical changes in their body as a result of some kind of environmental factor could pass those changes along to its offspring. You remember the example of the scientist who tried to prove Lamarck's theory by taking mice and cutting off the tails of the adult mice? Then he would breed the mice who had their tails missing, expecting that the children, the the offspring of these mice, would also have shorter tails. That's what Lamarck's theory proposes, that what happens to your body now can be transferred into your offspring. So that if you were short and wanted taller kids, you could get them by simply stretching your body. And then when you had kids, they'd be taller. Evolutionists built their model in part on that kind of thinking. The model that says when giraffes couldn't reach the tallest leaves, they could stretch to get to them. And only the ones who were able to stretch long enough could eat, and their offspring came out with slightly longer necks, and that's how the giraffe's neck grew over time. That's their theory. Now, later scientists completely disproved this nonsense. And our present-day knowledge of genetics tells us exactly how our parents pass characteristics along. They do it through their genes, not because of something that happens to their physical body, but because of their DNA. We know that today. So clearly, based on what we know, The sight of these rods is not going to influence the genetic makeup of these animals, and therefore it's not going to influence the kind of offspring they have. It cannot be that it's the sight of these rods, apart from something completely supernatural, which the text itself does not give us any reason to consider. The text approaches this as a very natural process, as if if Jacob knew in advance that this would work. Don't you agree? Well, Jacob was simply applying Mendelian genetics to perform selective breeding because in the DNA of these animals is all the genetic information required to produce all the color variations in this particular animal. For example, a solid white pair of sheep have in its DNA a recessive gene for dark colors. And if I have two animals with recessive genes for the dark color mate, I can take two white sheep and produce black sheep out of it. But you have to know that these animals have the recessive gene in order to make that happen. And in his day, without genetic testing, the only way to know that is through trial and error. And once I find a pairing that produces black, I can now narrow my choices down and begin to work with those animals and continue to interbreed them and get more and more of that recessive gene showing up. We call that the phenotype of the genotype. Jacob now is working here to mate the sheep and the goats carefully, selecting for the kind of colors he wants out of the offspring. The key to doing this, though, the key to being successful in this is you've got to control which animals mate with which animals. If you allow the animals to just mate any way they want, what's going to happen is the expression of color is simply going to follow Mendelian probabilities. You're going to get mostly white, mostly solid color, and every now and then you're going to end up with a speckled or a black. That's what Laban knew. That's what Laban was assuming was going to happen. That's what let Laban think he had many, many years of Jacob hanging around before Jacob could ever find enough wealth to leave. On the other hand, If the animals with those recessive genes are mated exclusively with one another, then you're going to reliably produce those speckled and spotted animals, and you're going to do it relatively quickly. So how does Jacob get the animals to mate only when he wants to only the ones he wants? I mean, you can't set out a romantic table 
and play a little soft music in the background and assume it's all just going to work out, right? As you're going to see in later chapters, Jacob can't even control what his own sons mated with, much less the animals. That's where the sticks come in. That's where the rods come in. Notice in verse 38, and here's where you find the answer. Notice in verse 38, it says, The flocks mated when they came to drink. The word for mated in Hebrew, you know what the word is? It's simply the word for hot or to heat something up. It means literally that when the animals drank the water with the bark in the water, they became hot. Or as we would say today, they went into heat. The female animals entered a period of fertility having drank that water. And as a result, the males are now attracted to them. So Jacob must have learned somewhere in the past as a sheep herder, he must have learned that these particular trees and the bark of these particular trees had a chemical in it that when it was dissolved in water could induce the heating or the fertility of female animals. And he's simply applying that science here. Notice only when the right animals come to the water trough does he put the bark in the water to cause them to heat. This is his catalyst. So rather than waiting for the female animals to simply go into heat on some random basis, whenever they might have naturally, Jacob forces them to become fertile at certain moments, and then he carefully orchestrates this so that it only happens when the right animals are present, and then he can mate them together. Notice in verses 40 through 41, Jacob peels back the bark, puts the rods in the water, but only for certain animals, only when the speckled or spotted animals were drinking, and then later only when the strong ones were drinking, And then once he has the females in heat, it says he turns his attention to the male animals. And then notice in verse 40, he separates the male animals so that only the speckled and striped and black males are facing, literally facing the female fertile animals while the rest were separated and couldn't mate. The Hebrew word for facing forward there literally means to gain the attention of another. So he basically introduced the males of his choosing to the females of his choosing that he had placed into a time of fertility. He's like running an e-harmony here for sheep and goats. And of course, as he does this, the process has two striking outcomes. First, it would have resulted in a rapid growth in his herd. Sheep can begin producing at six months old. Six-month-old sheep can reproduce. And they give birth in about five months. Gestation period is about five months. That means that a lamb can literally be a mother before its first birthday. And often they'll give birth to more than one animal. So they can have multiple offspring per pregnancy, an average of more than one pregnancy per year, and start reproducing after only six months. So if Jacob is inducing fertility at will among the female animals, then he would have been running a serious breeding operation here. In a relatively short period of time, he would have been able to amass a large number of animals. And of course, the math works geometrically. He can move these numbers very quickly in his direction. So despite what Laban did in removing all the spotted, all the speckled, here's Jacob off to the races with a flock growing by leaps and bounds. The second outcome here, by isolating the stronger animals from the weaker animals, he leaves only the runts for Laban. Only the weakest of the animals are going to be in his flock. So over this short period of time, not only would Jacob's flock have become very strong and numerous, Laban's flock would have become very weak, unproductive. You would have had a lot of infertile animals, a lot of sickly animals, a lot that weren't producing any milk. The difference would have been striking. In verse 43, you see the result. 
he became so prosperous, he earned so much wealth that not only did he have his own flock, he could purchase with what he had servants, donkeys, even camels. And in that day, a camel was like a Rolls Royce. If you had camels, you made it in that day and age. As we end today, I want you to remember Jacob's grandfather for a moment, Abraham. He also once left the land. He went down to Egypt. Remember that? And that was a journey that, in similar fashion, it began with sin. Abraham's lies and his lack of trust in God's provision during the famine led him into Egypt. But as a result of God's promises to Abraham, he blessed Abraham on the departure from Egypt. Egypt gave him great wealth as he left that nation. Here again, you have Jacob now. He left the land after a sin. God is going to send him out with great wealth to be a rich man as well. But there is a difference. What did Abraham do to obtain the wealth? Nothing. What Abraham did was sin, get himself in trouble. God did the rest. In Jacob's case, though, we see a man who has understood God as at work in the providing, has credited God even, but when it was opportunity to leave and let God bless him as God would do in whatever fashion God would choose, instead, Jacob just couldn't help himself he went that one extra step. He said, I know a way I can scheme my way into wealth at the expense of this man, Laban, who now I have come to hate for his injustice toward me. This is something God is going to reckon with in chapter 31. As Jacob enters the land, as we finish 30 today and go into 31 next week, Jacob is going to find himself confronted with someone he cannot outscheme, someone he cannot outwrestle. Someone who will be stronger than him, someone who will force him to come to the end of himself, sufficient to convince him that except for God's provision, Jacob has nothing. Heavenly Father, you give to each of us wisdom and insight, skill and ability. Jacob, Father, was a man who was blessed by you, had knowledge and intellect. And in this moment, in the days, in the, in the time we read today about in the scripture, we see a man who used his intellect and his wisdom in ways that were counter to your purpose, that placed trust in himself and not in you, even as he knew you, Father, and even as he knew that you provided. Jacob is a flawed man, but so are we, Father. And in our honest moment, we would admit we do the same thing from time to time. We acknowledge you in our life, we understand your provision, and yet we go off to work our own plan. I pray, Father, that what we've seen today in the story of Jacob would reinforce for us not only the truth of your word, but also, Father, the confidence in your provision and the need to rest in it. Thank you, Father, for this reminder, and we pray that you would keep it on the forefront of our mind during the week to come and bring us back here to study again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.